Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 2. Chapter 4. A Man Named Conway. Rick beat Scotty to the hold by about a yard and stopped short. The equipment, he exclaimed in horror. Seamen were directing the streams from the extinguishers and the sea hoses into the hold right at the precious radar gear. Overhead, the hatch was being lifted so that more water could be poured in. Smoke curled out, mixed with steam. Captain Marks came out through the smoke, blackened and red-eyed. "'Cut down on that water!' he yelled hoarsely. "'Cut it down! It's nothing but smoke now!' Professor Weiss grabbed Rick's arm. "'The equipment! Rick, do something!' "'There's nothing he can do!' Hobart Zircon bellowed. "'It's up to the captain and the crew!' We are ruined this time, Hobart. Ruined, do you hear? Weiss was on the verge of hysteria. Rick and Scotty pressed close to the door, forgetting they were in pajamas and bare feet. Through the swirling smoke, they could see shadowy piles of cargo, and they knew their equipment was in there where the smoke was thickest. Professor Weiss is right. This finishes us, Scotty, Rick said huskily. He had a swift vision of his father's face, and those of the other scientists when they heard the news. Months of preparation had gone up in smoke in that blackened hold. Captain Marks pushed by him into the hold again, shouting, All right, get that hatch off. Smartly now. Let's get the smoke out of here. Rick was at his heels, feeling the blast of fresh air as the big hatch cover on deck finally came off. Someone threw a switch. The hold was flooded with light from emergency lamps. The smoke eddied upward in the draft of air. Rick pushed his way to the equipment, ankle-deep in dirty water and floating debris. He turned to find Scotty behind him. Over here, he motioned. The stacked equipment was charred and dirty. A lump came into Rick's throat, and his eyes watered with something more than smoke irritation. Oh, what a mess! He shook his head sadly. Wait a minute, Scotty said. Maybe this ain't so bad. He was already lifting crates off the top of the pile and examining them on all sides. Rick, look. The outer ones are charred a little, but most of them are okay. Well, they are wet, though. Rick jumped to help him, his hopes rising. The wetness doesn't matter. They have waterproof plastic liners. Come on, Scotty, let's dig. The professors were with them now, and they worked frantically unstacking the crates and looking anxiously for signs of damage. Zircon straightened up from his inspection of a bulky wooden box. Thank God, he said. The radio frequency oscillator unit is undamaged. Beside him, Weiss pounced on another crate. The modulator! He looked over it feverishly. It is not burned, Hobart! What good fortune! Captain Marks appeared beside them. How bad is it? Possibly not hopeless, Zircon replied. We'll have to get the crates out on the deck and open them up to really tell. We'll do that right away, the captain said. After we found out what started this, there's nothing combustible down here. Most of the cargo is tool-making machinery. The skipper and the first officer began a careful inspection of the hold. Scotty and Rick followed, watching curiously as they looked for the origin of the fire. Right behind the stack of scientific equipment, Scotty bent down and picked up a charred rag. Holy smoke. Look at this. The ship's officers and Rick hurried to his side. 
The rag smelled strongly of kerosene. Captain Marks and the mate exchanged glances. Sabotage, the captain said sharply. It looks like the fire was set right next to your gear, Rick. A thread of fear went through him. Professor Weiss had been exploring a stack of crates beyond the equipment. Suddenly he let out a hoarse yell. Look at this! There is a dead man here! Instantly all hands were running to him. Captain Marks bent over the limp form lying behind the cases. He's not dead. Someone help me to get him up. Scotty took hold of the man's shoulders and they lifted him to a nearby crate. Rick saw that it was a ship's carpenter, Meekin, his mouth open and his eyes closed. He was breathing but with quick, shallow breaths. Let's get some air into him, the skipper urged. Willing hands lifted the prostrate form and carried him up the ladders to the deck. In the open air, Meekin stirred feebly and tried to sit up, looking around him with dazed eyes. There's your saboteur. Scotty said. There was a hint of dazed comprehension on the carpenter's face. What happened, Chips? Captain Marks grated. Meekin coughed smoke from his lungs. You set the fire when the smoke got to you before you could get out. Is that it? Meekin coughed again. The skipper shook him roughly. No stalling. Is that it? The carpenter looked up at the faces above him, at Professor Zircon's huge bulk at Scotty's grim face, at Rick. Yeah, he said. Yeah. The first officer arrived with a bottle of brandy and poured the fiery stuff down the carpenter's mouth. Meekin coughed until his face was purple, but he recovered noticeably. Take him to the wardroom, the skipper directed two seamen. We want to talk to him. The officers gathered in the wardroom with the scientist and the two boys. Meekin, still weak but now able to talk coherently, sat in a chair and faced his accusers, his face sullen. Okay, he said. Okay, I set the fire, but it was an accident. An accident? With rags soaked in kerosene? Don't hand us that stuff. Captain Mark's pleasant face was stern. You could have burned the ship out from under us if the watch hadn't been on the job. Better talk, Meekin, and fast. It was an accident. Meekin repeated thickly. About the hold being open, I mean. I figured if the hold was dogged down tight, the fire wouldn't spread. It would maybe die from lack of air, but the smoke got me, like you said, and I passed out before I could get to the door. Why did you set the fire, Meekin? Rick moved closer, eyes riveted to the man's streaked face. I had me orders, Meekin said at last. Who from? demanded. The pale eyes went from face to face. Suppose I don't talk. Captain Mark said slowly. You almost destroyed this ship, Meekin. You almost left the crew and officers adrift in lifeboats, not to mention our passengers. You talk, or I'll let the rest of the crew persuade you to talk. Meekin paled under the coating of grime. Rick's eyes went to the captain. He looked fully capable of carrying out the threat, though the boy was sure it was only a bluff. But if it was, Meekin had no intention of calling it. I got my orders from a guy named Conway, he said. How? He telephoned me in New York from Bombay, said he'd give me a thousand bucks if I wrecked the equipment these guys were bringing aboard.
He jerked his thumb at the professors. You spill that bottle of acid, Rick accused him. You tried to ruin the equipment that way first. Meekin's pale eyes met his. You can't prove that, the carpenter continued hastily. We won't have to, the skipper shot back. We've already gone through cold on this fire. Who's Conway? He's a con man, Meekin said. I knew him in China. He knew I was in the States because I've kept in touch with him on and off. When he called, I knew he was good for the dough, so I agreed to do the job. But why did he want our equipment wrecked? Professor Zircon barked. Meekin shrugged. That's his business. Talk, the skipper snapped. I can't. This guy called me on the telephone and said to work my connections to get on this ship and they get rid of the gear. That's all I know. Why did you steal my little radio? Rick asked suddenly. Megan opened his mouth to speak and then clamped it shut again. You thought it was part of the equipment. Maybe an important part, so you stole it. I don't know what you're talking about. Megan growled. Never mind, Weiss put in. It's not important, Rick. I am sure he stole it as you said and probably threw it overboard. What is important is finding out why this Conway wanted our equipment sabotaged. I'll tell you I don't know. I believe him, Captain Mark said. Probably it was hard to do a job without further explanations. Well, Meekin, I don't know what the maritime authorities will think of this, but you'll have a chance to find out. He turned to the first mate. We haven't got a brig, unfortunately, but that gear locker by the forward companionway will do nicely. See that he's locked up there. To the scientists, he said. Now, gentlemen, let's have your gear out on deck where we can look it over. It was nearing dawn before the inspection was completed and the uncrated equipment stowed under canvas on the forward deck. The professors had gone over it thoroughly and found a few ruined parts, but nothing by a great stroke of fortune that couldn't be replaced by any radio supply house. Professor Zircon radioed ahead to Bombay, requesting a British firm to have replacements ready. Now all that remained was to recreate the stuff before they reached Bombay and to unravel the mystery of Conway. Dawn came as Rick and Scotty leaned on the rail and talked, watching the dark canal banks slip by. There's no answer, Rick concluded. We know that a man named Conway wants to wreck our equipment, and he'll pay big money to have it done, but we don't know who he is or why he wants to do it. It's creepy, Scotty answered. We'll have to be on the watch from now on without knowing who or what we're watching for. This equipment is mostly special stuff, you know, Rick said thoughtfully. Dad and the rest put it together themselves from their own designs. If it were lost, the expedition would have to stop until more could be made. Well, how long would that take? I don't know, months. Maybe six months. Maybe more. Then you figure somebody wants to stop the expedition? But why? Search me, Rick replied. Maybe we'll find the answer in Bombay. Chapter 5. Bombay The blue of the Indian Ocean was fast turning to a muddy brown, a sign that they were nearing land. But the heat haze low over the water limited visibility to a few thousand feet. Rick and Scotty were already packed, and the professors were below, collecting the last of their gear. The skipper said we should see land pretty soon, Rick said. Scotty took his arm. Yeah, look! Far ahead, swimming out of the mist, were sails. They shimmered in the heat haze. 
some of them red, some brown, some gaudy with patches of many colors. The skipper came by and paused long enough to say, Dows, the native craft. Rick and Scotty watched eagerly as the curved, graceful craft drew near. They forged past, and dark-skinned, turbaned men waved and yelled. Gosh, it's just like the movies, isn't it? Scotty remarked. All those colored sails and stuff reminds me of a travelogue I once saw. Far ahead, a darker blur was visible through the heat haze. The boys watched in silence, eager for their first glimpse of India. Hobart Zircon joined them. He mopped his face with a huge handkerchief. Bombay, he rumbled. I can smell it already. Rick sniffed. Sure enough, there was a new odor in the air. It was pungent, spicy, rather unpleasant. But it was completely new, and he felt a pleasant tingle of anticipation. Professor Weiss joined them, and they watched as India unfolded before them. Soon large buildings were visible, some of them of white stone, some of brick. And then the docks themselves were in sight, and the ship was edging up to a pier next to a ship that flew the British ensign. One of the sailors threw a line that was caught by scantily clad men on the dock. The mooring line ran out, and they were secured. Rick and Scotty watched, fascinated by the teeming throngs on the docks. All the dock equipment was modern. Big cranes, concrete piers, railroad tracks close by. But the people looked like something out of the Arabian Nights. The dock workers seemed to be all of a kind, all clad in brief, draped rags and soiled turbans on their heads. The gangway was lowered to the dock, and the skipper shook hands all around. Well, he said with a hard smile, we made it. There were a few moments when I had my doubts, thanks to our friend Meekin. Zircon and Weiss checked the baggage with customs officials, while Rick and Scotty hurried up the ladder, eager for a closer look at the strange sights. Over beneath a huge crane, a crowd had gathered. A boy was doing a juggling act with a handful of stones for the entertainment of some of the dock workers. Nearby, gaunt old men crouched over huge bowls of foodstuffs, which neither boy could identify. Their voices cracked and shrill, lifted rhythmically as they hawked their wares. Zircon and Weiss came down the gangway and joined them. Zircon clapped his hands, and instantly a mob was around them. The burly scientist pointed to half a dozen out of the tattered crowd, then indicated their personal baggage, piled on the ship's deck. The chosen half-dozen swarmed to the deck, hoisted the suitcases and trunks to their heads, and came back again, looking expectantly at Zircon. At once a new crowd gathered, this time made up of men with a more prosperous look to them. Some wore red fezes on their heads, and one had a felt hat. Speech, English, sir, the one with the felt hat said. Zircon nodded to him and to one of the men wearing a red fez. Green's Hotel, he bellowed. They ran off, followed by the porters, with the luggage carried on their heads. Rick and Scotty looked at each other and grinned. Zircon had the situation well in hand. A little man with a shiny black hat and an equally shiny black frock coat approached, bowing and smiling. He wore tight-fitting white trousers and had no shoes. Weiss lowered his voice and spoke to the boys. A posse. They're merchants, mostly. I wonder what this one wants. The Parsi addressed them, all impartially, his eyes going from one to the other. I am from the hotel, he informed them in excellent English. You are Dr. Zircon and Barty. 
That's correct, Sir Con replied. I have a truck. You have many heavy boxes for the hotel warehouse. I am to take them for you. Sir Con breathed a sigh of relief. I was wondering how we'd get the equipment to the hotel. He pointed to the crates on the schooner's dock. There it is. You got men to help you? All is arranged, sir, the Parsi informed him. He waved his hand and a half dozen men came running. Across the dock, a blunt-nosed truck coughed into life and roared toward them. Under the Parsi's direction, the equipment was loaded in a few minutes. The black-hatted man bowed. This will be taken to the hotel warehouse. Wait, Wise said nervously. Hobart, we shouldn't leave the equipment. I'm afraid, he hesitated. You're right, Julius, Zircon agreed. I'll go with it, Scotty offered. I'd feel better, too, if one of us kept an eye on it. Do you want me to come, too? Rick asked. Nah, don't bother. One's enough. Okay, Rick said. Don't get into trouble. And see that they are careful with it, Weiss added. Scotty climbed on the truck and took a seat on top of the equipment. The porters climbed on with him. He waved gaily as the truck turned out through the gate. Zircon led the way across the pier to where the man in the felt hat and the one in the red fez waited beside old-fashioned, horse-drawn open carriages. Gary's, the big scientist said. They're not as fast as taxi cabs, but they're a lot safer. The baggage was stowed in one, and the three climbed into the one driven by the man with the felt hat. Once they left the dock area, there were streetcars, buses, even motion picture theaters. In the center of intersections, little purple and yellow-clad policemen directed traffic from under huge umbrellas carried on a frame in their belts. The Gary pulled up before a tall brick structure with a wide balcony just above the street. A uniformed doorman in the inevitable turban ran up to meet them, touching his hand to his forehead, lips, and heart in the Muslim fashion. Salem! Salem, sahibs! he greeted them. Welcome to Green's Hotel! They registered and were taken to their rooms, which were sparsely furnished with wicker furniture. Rick unpacked and stowed his clothes, thinking the Scotty should be along soon. When his own stuff was arranged, he unpacked his friend's bag and then went into the professor's room. I'm hungry, he announced. Youth, Sircon sighed. It can eat even in heat like this. He mopped his face with a large handkerchief. Okay, fine. Let's go to the dining room. Scotty can find us there. They chose a table at the railing of the open-air dining room, and waiters came running with menus. Rick looked around curiously. Most of the diners were Indians, well-dressed in Western suits. There was a sprinkling of British uniforms and a few Europeans in white linens. Do you suppose any of this is safe to eat? Weiss asked. Of course, Sircon assured him. I'm going to have the beefsteak. There was a polite cough, and they turned to see a man dressed in immaculate white linen, smiling down at them. He had very short reddish-brown hair and sharp eyes, and he carried an expensive riding crop. Your pardon, gentlemen. I was sitting at the next table, and I could not help overhearing. I thought I would warn you that the beef is unfortunately quite apt to be camel. Camel? Rick exclaimed. Yes, I'm afraid so. There was a meat shortage in India, you see. And beef is quite rare. Our Indian friends provide camel so that the visitors who want beef need not be disappointed. It is very kind of you to warn us, sir, 
Weiss said. The stranger bowed. Permit me to introduce myself. I am Hendrik van Groot. You, of course, are Dr. Sir Condon Weiss, and this young man would be... Is that Scott or Brandt? Brandt, Rick replied. He noticed a sharp, pungent odor, very familiar, that seemed to hang over Van Groot like an aura. He tried to identify it, but couldn't quite remember. Won't you join us? Zircon invited cordially. Thank you. Van Groot pulled out the chairs next to Rick and sat down. The Times of India carried a complete report on your coming radar experiment a short time ago. I was very interested because I have traveled Tibet extensively. In fact, I know the Tengi Bu Plateau quite well. Rick listened in silence as the scientists exclaimed their delight in meeting somebody who knew their destination. He decided Van Groot was a very unusual man. Only somebody remarkable would be able to keep his linen suit so immaculate and well-pressed in this heat. Rick's own clothes were long since limp and wrinkled. Van Groot noticed a fleck of dust on his spotless sleeve and produced a tissue from his inner pocket. He flicked the tiny bit of dust off, and the odor struck Rick's nostrils again, but stronger. Menthol, he exclaimed. Van Groot turned to him with a smile. Yeah, I purchased these tissues and placed menthol crystals in the box. You see, I have lived in India and the Orient most of my life, and I have learned the value of caution. If one wishes to avoid disease, it is best never to touch things with the bare hands. These disposable tissues are invaluable. The menthol is, shall we say, a cover-up. My nose dislikes many of the odors of India. The scientist nodded. Quite right, Weiss said. Rick remained silent. He had his own opinions about a man who was so fussy. Besides, he didn't like the odor of menthol. It reminded him of cold medicines. He stirred restlessly. What was keeping Scotty? I can recommend the curried lamb, Von Groot said. They do it very well here. At Zircon's questioning glance, Rick nodded. Curried lamb was okay by him, whatever it was. When the waiter had taken their order, Von Groot asked, Have you chosen your route to the plateau yet? I may be able to help if you wish. The route has been decided by... Weiss began. There was a commotion at the door of the dining room, and Rick turned to see what the trouble was. As he did, an incredibly dirty little native boy broke loose from the restraining hands of the waiters and ran across the dining room toward them. The boy dodged the outstretched hands and ran to their table, the waiters in pursuit. Sahibs, he gasped. I have a thing I wish to say. Then the waiters were upon him. He struggled, but they picked him up bodily, smothering his angry yells. In a moment, he was out of the room, and they heard the clatter as the waiters rushed him down the stairs. Now, what do you suppose he wanted? Rick asked, puzzled. Van Groot shrugged. Doubtless he had some tale to get money out of you. This is a nation of beggars, you know. They are great hands at inventing tales that will bring a rupee or two. Zircon spoke up. What do you suppose is keeping Scotty? Yeah, he is rather late. Why said worriedly. Rick, why don't you go to the lobby? He may be waiting for us at the desk. Rick rose and, excusing himself, turned to leave, and then stopped short with a gasp. Scotty was just coming into the dining room. His white suit was dusty and stained, and his hair disheveled. He strode to the table, rubbing a large purple bruise on his forehead. The boy looked from face to face, lips pressed tight together.
The equipment is gone, he announced harshly. Chapter 6 Enter Chata. For an instant there was silence around the table, and then they were all talking at once. Professor Weiss wrung his hands. Scotty, are you sure this is terrible? The equipment cannot be gone. Hobart, do you hear him? It must be some sort of mistake. It's no mistake, sir, Scotty replied. Zircon put a shaking hand on the boy's shoulder. There must be some kind of explanation, son. Surely the equipment couldn't be stolen in broad daylight. I was riding on the back of the truck, Scotty explained. We went through the gate and into the city. Then one of the natives pushed me from behind. I fell off the truck and cracked my head. It dazed me, I guess, because when I got up, the truck was gone. Weiss slumped into his chair. I knew it! I knew it! I had the premonition of disaster! I told you, Hobart! I told you! Zircon ignored his distressed colleague. Go on, son. I hailed a taxi and had him take me to the hotel warehouse. It's right around the corner from here. I thought it might have been an accident and the truck would show up. It didn't, so I came over here to find you. Zircon's face was pale, but he was calm. Are you sure it was the right warehouse? Yes, sir, I checked. Besides, the hotel clerk said they didn't send anybody because they weren't sure when we'd dock. Van Groot spoke up. But who on earth would steal your scientific equipment? Conway, Rick muttered bitterly. Van Groot's eyebrows went up. Indeed, and who is this Conway? Wish I knew, Zircon said shortly. The big man's face was set in a determined expression. We're going to find out, don't you fear. Well, I suppose our first step is to go to the police. Julius Weiss had been completely stunned by the news, but now he leapt to his feet and objected shrilly. No, Hobart! The, the police are fools! We must go to the American Council and demand men to search. We, we must get the equipment back at once. Do you hear me at once? You're right, Zircon agreed. It's best for the council to handle this. Weiss was paper white, but he had regained control of himself. You had better do something about that bruise, he told Scotty. It must be very painful. It is, Scotty answered, then bitterly added, Let it ache. It'll remind me not to be such a dope again. Take it easy, Rick said. It wasn't your fault. Of course not, Zircon agreed. Well, let's go. The sooner we find the council, the sooner we can get started on the trail of our equipment. Van Groot dusted an imaginary speck of dust from his trousers with a methylated tissue. If I can be of aid, gentlemen, do not hesitate to call upon me. He said suavely, I'm registered here at the hotel. The party hurried out and walked down the flight of steps to street level, Rick and Scotty behind the professors. Who's that guy? Scotty wanted to know. Rick explained and then added, He's a seriously queer duck. I don't think I like him. As they went out the front door of the hotel, the beggar boy who had invaded the dining room hurried up, only to be chased away by the doorman. 
Garys were lined up beyond the door. Zircon hailed two and they got in. The ancient horses trotted off and the boys followed behind the scientists. Rick noted that the beggar boy was running up the street after them. I wonder what he wants. Scotty looked at the little brown figure. I don't know what he wants, but I do know what he needs. A bath. He grinned weakly. Nothing was very funny right now. As they passed through the heart of the city, Rick looked behind now and then. The beggar boy was still with them, running along about a block behind. Once they stopped for traffic, he almost caught up. Then they moved on, and he was left behind again. Funny he should tag along like that, Rick commented. They turned down Ballard Road in a short time and drew up for the building that flew the American flag. As they went into the consulate, the beggar boy came trotting up. He took Zircon's coattails and tugged. Please, Sahib, please listen to me. Zircon looked down absently. Go away, kid. Then they went through the doors and the boy was left outside. The American consular secretary listened to their story gravely and made copious notes on his pad. I'll do what I can, he promised. It's too late to expect any action today, however. I'm afraid the police commissioner has been gone for some time, he said, glancing at his watch. But I'll call his office. They may have a file on Conway. You'll hear from me in the morning. As the others left, Rick lingered. Can you change some money for me? Of course. The secretary drew out neat packets of rupee notes and made change for Rick's American money. Rick thanked him and ran to join the others. Out on the sidewalk, Scotty was waiting alone. Professors grabbed a Gary and headed for the Asiatic Geographical Union to talk with the people there. Then they're going to Captain Marks and see if he can help them get any more information out of Meekin. I'm afraid it isn't going to do much good, Rick said unhappily. Hey, here's our friend again. The little beggar boy approached timidly, his brown face split by a white-toothed smile. Hello, Sahibs, he greeted them. Hello, Rick answered cautiously. The native boy came only to Rick's shoulder, but on second glance appeared to be older than he had been in the dining room. Rick guessed his age at about 15. He was dirty and ragged, but there was something about his face and his cheerful grin that appealed to Rick, and he smiled back. The boy inspected Rick carefully and then turned his glance to Scotty while they waited good-naturedly to see what he wanted. These clothes much good, I think, the native boy said. You buy clothes for me when I tell you a good thing, yes? It depends. What is it? Rick said, grinning. You buy me clothes, the native boy said, and I take you to the man who drives the truck with your boxes of stuff. Chapter 7 the man in the red turban. You'll get a new suit, Rick promised. Now start talking, young fella. My name is Chada, the Hindu boy said. It means the number 14 in my language. I am the 14th child in my family. What do you know about our equipment? Scotty asked impatiently. I was at the dock when the ship came in, Chada explained. I saw the boxes put on the truck. And I saw this man who drives, and I know him. He is not a good man, this one. He is a thief. I think there is dirty works afoot, Chada continued. So I chased the truck, and I saw Sahib be pushed off. Soon the truck goes fast, and I was not able to follow. I go to Green's Hotel, but the men do not let me talk with you. But you know where the driver lives? Yes, Chada assented. 
Why'd you chase the truck? Scotty demanded. The boy shrugged expressively. I think maybe the American sahibs will give me many rupees if I help them. You'll get many rupees, all right, Rick promised. Just lead us to where the truck driver is. Chada hesitated. It is far, and it is not a good place for the sahibs to go when it is dark. Rick glanced at the sky. The sun had gone down, and dusk was falling rapidly. Where is this place? You know Crawford Market? Forest Road? Rick shook his head. No, where are they? Far. Better we go tomorrow. No, Rick insisted. We go tonight or no rupees. Chada shrugged. He held a Gary and spoke volubly in Hindustani. Then he bowed as a signal for the boys to get in. They sat in the back and Chada climbed to the little seat at the front and sat facing them, and the Gary moved off. They left the business section of the city and drove down into a quarter where white men were few. This was the crowded Crawford Market section, the native markets that housed the shops of the silversmiths, the coppersmiths, the vendors of birds and monkeys and wicked-looking knives and strange foodstuffs and exotic fabrics. As they progressed deeper into the quarter, the number of people seemed to increase. Men and boys ran alongside the carriage, holding up their wares or shouting, Alms! Alms for the love of Allah! Chada called out to them in a curt manner. And then explained to the boys, I told them to go away, or maybe I called the cops. Rick and Scotty grinned at his use of American slang. Chada was an amazing little fellow. They were further amazed when Rick exclaimed at the numbers of people, for the Hindu boy announced, The population of Bombay is 1,400,000, same as Connecticut in America. He continued with studied nonchalance just as though the two white boys were not staring at him pop-eyed. Maybe so, these Connecticut have more peoples now. When they count noses in the 1920s, it was 1,380,000, almost like Bombay, I think. Rick's jaw was hanging slack. Did you get that, Scotty? The population of Connecticut, according to the 1920 census? Chada, where did you get that information? Chada looked pleased. Oh, I know many things about this America. I have read a book. I believe it, Scotty said. Where'd you learn English? Oh, for many years, maybe two, maybe three, I was a houseboy for a missionary man in Nepal. He taught me to speak. I speak good, yes? Yes, Rick agreed. What book did you read? Chada smiled comfortably. It is a very va va valuable Yes, my father has had it for a long time. He found it when a train wrecked. Some things I do not understand, but the missionary, he helped me. I read some more, and I remember all these things. But what was the name of the book? Chara said proudly, It was called the World Almanac. The World Almanac? Rick choked back a laugh, not wanting to hurt Chara's feelings. He had a vision of the boys sitting by the hour memorizing the facts on the almanac. Why did you try to remember the facts, Chada? he asked. Someday I will go to America, the Hindu boy announced. It would be good to know these things, yes? Well, yeah, Rick agreed. There seemed to be no other answer. The Gary rolled on through the market district into a quarter where the houses were of flimsy wooden construction and close together.
It was a place of dim light and foul odors and misery beyond anything Rick had ever imagined. Chada had certainly brought them to the worst quarter of Bombay. I think I know why Van Groot carries menthol in his pocket now, Rick commented wryly. Chick, Scotty said. Rick, I don't like this part of town. Notice the way the people are looking at us. We are going back then? Chada asked hopefully. No, we're here. We may as well see about this truck driver. Rick didn't like the looks of the quarter either, but he was determined to find the driver who had gone off with their equipment. Chada called up to their driver, and the Gary stopped. We are here, the native boy told them. They paid the Gary driver, then Chada led the way to a dismal-looking alley and stopped before a crude door. It is better that we do not go in, perhaps, he said. No, let's go, Rick answered quietly, though he was feeling far from calm. Anything could happen in this part of town. Chada pushed open the door. They went into a low-ceiling room on which many tables were set. The foul air made Rick choke. Guttering candles were the only illumination. They cast a wavering light on the face of the sole occupant who was seated at one of the tables, head bowed low over a cup. As they entered, he looked up. Scotty clutched Rick's arm. The pockmarked face and the red turban were those of the truck driver. Chada, Rick asked tensely. Ask him where he took our stuff. Chada spoke voluble syllables. The driver looked up warily, then deliberately swung his chair around and turned his back on them. He, he will not talk. We go, yes? Chada urged. The door in the back of the room opened and the second man came in. He had a pointed face, half hidden by a sloppily tied turban. Scotty recognized him. Rick heard his friend's voice rise angrily. That's the one who pushed me off the truck. He saw the newcomer and the truck driver reach into the folds of their clothes and saw the flicker of candlelight on gleaming steel, and he saw Scotty jump forward. With a yell, he grabbed Scotty's right arm and held on while Chada leapt forward and grabbed the other arm, and together they rushed him out into the alley.